In today's episode, we open up Mark chapter 15, the first 41 verses. Jesus is brought to stand trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. Despite Pilate finding no fault in him, the crowd demands his crucifixion, which fulfills prophecy. This passage vividly describes Jesus' excruciatingly journey to Golgotha, the mocking by the soldiers, and the crucifixion itself. It captures the agony of Jesus and some of the reactions of those around him. Most importantly, we are given the opportunity to reflect on the profound significance of his sacrificial death. Good morning and blessed last week of Pentecost. Today is Tuesday, November 28th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. And as always, Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about all that they do to translate and publish Lutheran work on their website at lhfmissions.org. We're live this morning, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions. The number is 800-730-2727. If that's not your style, you can email your questions or comments to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also send me a Facebook message. I'll try to get your question or comment out on the air. But for right now, let's welcome our guest. Uh, He's been on the show several times before. Happy to have him back. It's the Reverend Gregory Alms. He's the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and School in Cantonsville, Maryland. Uh, Good morning, Pastor Alms. Welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. It's always fun. Excellent, excellent. And today's text is certainly an interesting one. We're, we're finally getting into the, the meat of the passion story, as a, according to Mark. Uh, before we get into any of that, though, would you just start our time off together in prayer so we can hit the ground running? Sure. Uh, let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of your Holy Word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to study it, to read it, to, to pray over it so that uh, you might... Um, speak uh, your truth to us. Uh, we thank you in particular for the story today, the, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, which is the center of our salvation along with his resurrection. And as we move into Advent and towards the birth of Christ, we are reminded uh, of his death for us, uh, forgiveness of sins, and his, and his resurrection. Uh, bless our time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last time we were together, Peter denies Jesus. They're all in the courtyard of the high priest, and Peter fulfills Jesus' prophecy by, well, when he said the rooster would crow twice, you'll have denied me three times, and that's exactly what happened. He recognizes that he had done that, and the chapter ends with the words, he broke down and wept. Our passage for this morning picks up the next morning. I'm going to read just the first five verses. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Okay, that's the first five verses. 
Uh, let's start at the top, brother. You know, it's morning. The chief priests are meeting with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. That's the Sanhedrin. Uh, what are they doing? Strategizing on how they're going to get rid of this Jesus guy, I guess. Yeah, and uh, there's some <clears throat> question, I think, about whether um, uh, Jesus was there, uh, you know, if this was sort of a second trial in the Gospel of Mark. But uh, in any event, you know, it was clear in, in chapter 14 that, um, you know, their their minds are made up. It's been really made up even before that, you know, as, as you read through the Gospel, it uh, train is already moving down the track. So this is kind of the culmination of this opposition and scheming uh, that's been going on among the enemies of Jesus. And and here it uh, reaches its climax, really, uh, as they uh, bind him and deliver him to the to the Roman governor. And it's, the uh, as I said, the climax of, of a lot of, uh, obviously, of chapter 14 and the, and the trial and, and also, you know, this opposition, as you read through the Gospels, you know, they move, um, you know, pretty swiftly uh, towards, uh, you know, the betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion of Jesus. So you mentioned that this was the second meeting of the Sanhedrin. The first one, this day is Good Friday. The first one was held during the night, and it's my understanding that the law forbade that. So perhaps this morning time meeting, as you said, they'd already made up their mind. Was this just to kind of give some sort of legitimacy or legality to the proceedings? I, I don't know that we're exactly told, but I think that's a pretty popular theory. What What are your thoughts? Yes. Why the two? Why the two? Yeah, I think that's that that is a good uh, hypothesis, right? I mean, you know, this previous meeting, which you guys went over in in chapter fourteen, you know, again, the time is is kind of wonky; shouldn't be happening. And and as the as Mark tells us, there's uh, there's false witness, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of, uh, um, monkey business, uh, you know, really not a, uh, not a proper, um, procedure, uh, for the Jewish, um, uh, legal system such as it was. And so I think, yeah, they're, they're trying to get some legitimacy, you know, they're, they're getting their ducks in order, you know, pilot I'm sure is going to want to not want to get involved in something that's been hasty or, or something that's, um, you know, not uh, legitimate. So I do, I do think that they're trying to cover their bases and, and, uh, 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 you know, put a, a good face on it. I mean, that Mark certainly seems to make that clear as the next thing they do is to go deliver him over to Pilate. I think that raises a few questions for folks. I mean, those who've read the other gospels might be asking where's, Herod? And then also, why Pilate? Why involve them at all? Were they not able to exercise their own justice against Jesus? Did they have to go to Pilate? I guess, why did they do the things they were doing? And and where's Herod in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think Herod is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and Herod, of course, had uh, jurisdiction over Galilee. Um uh, descendant of the first Herod, what I usually call the Christmas Herod, uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, the one who tried to put tried to put Jesus to death when he was a baby, um, uh, and that Herod passed away, and uh, the the land of uh, uh, Palestine and the surrounding area got um, divided up in various ways. The Roman government uh, eventually. 
um, took over direct rule of um, Judea and uh, which included Jerusalem. And so a pilot is there in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, the Gospel of uh, Luke tells us that Pilate uh, did try to pawn Jesus off on a political move to Herod once he found out he was a Galilean. But uh, Pilate certainly has jurisdiction in Jerusalem. This is uh, Passover time. He's there. I think the Jews, you know, I mean, there's various motivations as to why. I mean, they, they, they could stone people to death uh, for religious questions. I think... Um, you know, uh, perhaps again, covering their own bases, Jesus had been very popular among the Jewish people themselves. And if, if they can get Pilate to put him to death, their hands are clean, so to speak. And um, uh, and, and I think they're trying to get a, a sympathetic uh, verdict from Pilate to, to do their business for them. We read in John chapter 18, you know, and this has always been questioned by folks, Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews say to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But as you mentioned, yeah. we, we've seen them do that. Uh, you know, I, I, I also tend to lean towards this idea that involving Pilate was very much an attempt to distance themselves from the from the punishment of Jesus. And, and not to mention that, but the way that the Romans put someone to death, uh, especially crucifixion, is very public, very heinous. Um, if they would have just stoned them, people would have said, okay, well, you know, here's the Jews with some Jewish spat. But by incorporating the, I guess, the more provincial government into the whole thing, it becomes a lot more, I guess, well-known, a lot more dramatic. I mean, I think they were really looking to make an example of Jesus. They were perfectly willing to play along with the state so long as, of course, they continued to rule whatever little slice of the kingdom they were given. Right. Yes, that's right. I think uh, um, they were uh, trying to make an example of Jesus, uh, keep a, a grip on their own power. And, um, you know, in the Gospel of Mark, it's of course, it's it's a short gospel and, and Mark is very compact in the way he tells the story. But. You know, from the other Gospels, we know that the Jews are kind of playing on Pilate's fears of uprising and, and rebellion. And so um, uh, while in their own uh, trial and consultations before the Sanhedrin, you know, the, the, the uh, accusation they make against Jesus is really, is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? As it says there, the son of the blessed. And, you know, they're really, to Pilate, you know, as Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? So they're making a political accusation against Jesus in front of Pilate, because, of course, Pilate could care less whether Jesus is some uh, religious messianic figure, uh, you know, some spiritual something or other. But he's very concerned if uh, Jesus is claiming to be king or to have some sort of uh, political power. Uh, and so Pilate would certainly understand the word king of the Jews in a political, earthly sense. And in Mark's gospel, and of course in the others, it's this that Pilate's most concerned about. And it's this what the Jews are, the Jewish leaders are uh, pressing against him. And, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And, uh, and of course, Jesus is. Uh, you know, that's part of being the Messiah. Uh, but Jesus 
uh, doesn't engage Pilate in Mark's gospel on that question. He just seems you have said so. Um, so, you know, everybody has got their own little angles that they're playing, and Jesus happens to be at the center. And of course, you know, for us, as we're reading the gospel, we know that even though the Jews obviously have sinful motivations and sinful actions, um, Pilate too, um, God is, you know, in this upside down way that the crucifixion is, is working out his will of, of salvation. So, you know, it's interesting, and I'm going to, I don't mean to go on for so long, but, you know, Jesus makes no further answer, verse five, and, and we're beginning to get echoes, and I think we'll get it in this whole chapter of, you know, the servant songs, Isaiah 52, 53, you know, where it says he opened not his mouth. Um, and so, you know, we get this portrait of Jesus uh, by by Mark, the gospel writer, that even as all of this machinations are going on and, and people are, are uh, you know, doing evil against Christ, and yet he's, he's walking the road of the cross as as he as he's that's what he came to do and to suffer. Isaiah 53 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. You're absolutely right. We see that prophecy being fulfilled here as Jesus makes no answer to Pilate's concerns about whether or not he is uh, a king. Jesus certainly knows what's going on. Pilate, I think, starts to figure it out, too, because, as you said earlier, you know, he tries to pawn him off on Herod. And even in this, what 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 uh, Mark wants to focus on next with the Jesus um, being offered up by Pilate as maybe we can free this guy. It seems like he's always trying to to get off the hook of Jesus. And we actually know that he washes his hands of it by the end. Um, it's it's a it's a fascinating thing watching Pilate, you know, try to strategically and politically address this situation. But as you pointed out, God's the one who's in control. Let's look at verse six. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That's the end of verse 15. So at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Um, a couple of things stand out. One, the feast. This is this feast of unleavened bread. At the same time, the insurrection. He, they're talking about some sort of event, some sort of insurrection that it's sufficient enough just to say, the insurrection. People would have known what they were talking about. Um, how do you make of, of what's going on behind the scenes here in, in Pilate's attempt to get Jesus released? Well, as you said, it's a local custom. And I think all of the Gospels, uh, at least the Synoptic Gospels, refer to this uh, custom of um, uh, a release at uh, the Passover, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, sort of a goodwill gesture. Um 
uh, on the part of the Romans uh, for a, uh, a high holy festival of the Jews, the biggest time of the year that, um, you know, the, the Romans wanted to keep the Jews peaceful and, and not rebellious. You said, as it says, there's an insurrection, and that's what got Barabbas uh, jailed. Uh, he had committed murder. So there's a recent insurrection, and again, it brings in this context, this background that we're we're getting throughout this chapter of, at least in Pilate's uh, actions, that, you know, he's acting out of a political calculation. So, you know, this specter of of insurrection and rebellion and revolt is is lurking, and um, Pilate's motivation throughout uh, is to um, keep the peace, and and that's what this custom was about. It was keeping the Jewish people happy, giving them um, a prisoner, uh, you know, that would make the crowd happy. So uh, Pilate is 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 uh, is moving forward in 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 those sort of motivations. It's it's fascinating, you know, this figure of Barabbas. Um, you know, his name in Aramaic, um, Bar, which means son, and Abba, which means father. His his name is literally son of the father. And so, you know, you have Jesus uh, is the son of man. He is uh, asked in verse back in chapter fourteen, "Are you the son of the blessed one?" That is another way of saying. A son of the father and so it's very ironic you know that that uh the the um uh, the one in prison who is released is called son of the father and the jews are calling out for the son of the father barabbas in uh instead of the true son of the father and so as we read it you know those sort of things uh jump out at us it's 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 truly incredible and you know, Pilate, um, as much as he is sort of a sympathetic figure uh, to us in that he he um, he sees that uh, Jesus has done no wrong. He says in verse 14, why, what evil has he done? And he perceives in verse 10, it's only out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. And yet, Pilate, right there, when he realizes what evil has he done, Pilate has the power. He doesn't have to listen to the crowd. He could have released Barabbas and Jesus. I mean, Pilate has the power to do whatever he wishes with Jesus. And so, having essentially found him innocent, um, he really takes the cowardly way out and surrenders to the will of the crowd, um, uh, releases Barabbas, but then... Uh, you know, they're yelling out, crucify him, and, and so he does. So Pilate is far from a sympathetic character, and uh, he it's more wishy-washy political than, than anything else in this scene. Yeah, I certainly don't doubt that. From what I've read of Pilate, one of the things also going on in the background is that in this area, there was a lot of unrest. We get evidence of it in the scriptures. We get a lot of evidence for it outside the scriptures. And so Pilate was well known before becoming the governor of Judea for being um, very much a powerful military leader. He's brought in to Jerusalem for the very purposes to keep and restore peace. It's kind of like a, a last ditch effort, both for Pilate's career and for uh, for the region. And so they send in this very strong leader to keep the peace. And while I'm certainly not getting Pilate off the hook, um, unsympathetic, I, I, I would agree with that in large part. 
Well, at the same time, I think there is reason to be sympathetic in the sense that he's not a Jew. People aren't even witnessing to him. No one's trying to convert Pilate. He's uh, his job. His vocation is to keep the peace. Uh, and, and he does that to, you know, by means of, well, the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, which while is an injustice on earth, we certainly see how God works through that injustice. And so that's not to vindicate Pilate, but I can also sort of understand it from Pilate's point of view in the same way that I try to paint the chief priests and scribes a little bit in uh, somewhat of a sympathetic light, because if someone were to come into our worship space and start saying that they were Jesus returned, I, I doubt any of us would sit down and say, well, okay, we'll convince us of that. No, we would just laugh them out or, 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 or remove them from the assembly. We would get them help, perhaps mental help. Uh, so I don't understand why we should be, you know, too cautious. I mean, sorry, not, uh, too judgmental. Well, at the same time, though, uh, Pilate is very much a, a, a politician, a warmongering kind of guy. He's looking for Jesus to give him answers. Jesus isn't answering him, which is in fulfillment of Scripture. But, yeah, we see him time and again with his wife that we learn from other Gospels. We see here he's trying to get, hey, or take, take somebody else, uh, take this Jesus rather, take this Jesus. I don't. He doesn't want to crucify him is the sense that I get. Coward's way out. Yeah, I, I guess I would argue with that. He'd rather die, have one man die for the peace of the people rather than have to stand up for what is just. Uh, but I don't think it's probably anything inconsistent with what other rulers would have done at the time. Sure. Yes, I mean, everybody's coming at this um, from different angles. And as you said, uh, Pilate's vocation is precisely to be a political leader and to be, as you said, to keep the peace and to, you know, he's completely coming at this as a Roman uh, ruler, you know, and he's not, uh, he's not bound up with Jewish religious questions. And so he's considering this simply on those merits, which of course, that's, that's what he does. And same with the Jewish leaders. And, uh, you know, we get this a sense from the way the gospels are written and uh, Mark included that you know, as we read it, baptized Christians knowing the end of the story, you know, um, God is working out his will. And, and, and these people, this gets really twisty and turny here. And that is that, you know, Pilate is, is God's instrument for delivering Jesus to the cross because delivering Jesus to the cross is what Jesus' mission is. He's, he's going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And God is using Pilate and he's using the chief beasts and the councils. Now, that doesn't absolve them, uh, you know, no. from responsibility for their actions. Um, you know, you know, the, they have free will. In other words, God, they're not robots, uh, but God is using their actions. So it gets gets complicated. But, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think it is very helpful, as you have said, to consider the decisions that everyone is making and the, uh, the roads they are taking from their own perspective. And, and then it, it, it makes sense the decisions they are making, even if, you know, they're not the right ones. I mean, but, right. but they are, they make sense uh, of what they're doing. John's gospel gives us a little bit more detail, but in verse 15, even it says, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, release for them Barabbas. And then having scourged Jesus, Mark goes right into him being crucified. But we know from elsewhere that he was, uh, Pilate was hoping that that would satisfy them. You know, I've, I've, 
applied some physical punishment. This guy, he's learned his lesson. Let me release him. And nope, they are very fixed on him being crucified. And so he delivers them to be crucified. But, you know, we talk about justice and injustice. I was recently just reading Micah chapter five, where uh, or six rather, where God is indicting his people for their injustices. I, frankly, all of chapter, all of Micah is, is an indictment of, the, of God's people for, for injustice. And of course, that is the same book that points us forward to Jesus's birth. So here we see more injustice, not only from the part of the, the chief priests and elders, but on the part of Pilate and at the part of the soldiers. Let's read verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that's the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking him on his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. We're going to dig into that when we get back from our break, but just something for us to chew on. You know, why are the soldiers mocking Jesus? They don't seem to have a dog in this fight, and yet they relish in mocking him. Something I want to talk about when we get back. But folks, don't go anywhere. We'll listen to these messages, and the pastor and I will be back covering Mark chapter 15. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host. This is Thy Strong Word. And with me this morning is the Reverend Gregory Alms. He's the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and School in Catonsville, Ketan Maryland. How do you pronounce that town? Catonsville. Catonsville. You want to put an N at the beginning. We all do, but there's no N at the very beginning. Catonsville. <laughs> I suspected right. that. I live near a town called Canton in North Carolina, and that's stuck in my head, too. So, yes, Catonsville, my apologies. Go. Well, the good no pastor problem. and I, are we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. Before I head back in the text, though, I just want to let you know, if you have any feedback, questions, or comments, feel free to reach out. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook. You can even call into the studio, 730-2727. Put 800 in front of that, 730-2727. Any of these methods can get your question or comment out on the air. But, Pastor, let's get back into the text. So we got right into the soldiers mocking Jesus. You know, it's something that's always come to my mind whenever we get to this part of the church calendar or whenever I'm reading the Gospels. You know, 
the soldiers just mock Jesus mercilessly. Uh, is this just sort of a, a indicator of the deviance of the kind of people who are soldiers? Uh, wh- what do they even care? Why, why are they? So I guess trying to humiliate Jesus, I, I understand it from the Jews, but just like Pilate doesn't really have a dog in the fight. Doesn't seem like they do either. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the soldiers uh, in, like you say, in all of the gospels, uh, severely mistreat Jesus and, and mock him. I think a couple of things going on. I mean, it's hard to know that obviously their personal sure, motivations sure. and uh, the habits of the Romans. I don't think the Romans were very nice people, uh, you know, um, and soldiers can obviously sometimes if they're not, uh, if they don't proper discipline and so forth can get out of hand uh, and abuse the power. It's always a temptation. Um, I, I think there's, there's some scripture prophecy about, uh, although here in this little section, um, maybe nothing uh, specific, but, you know, again, we've mentioned Isaiah 53 and, um, you know, the portrait that is painted there of the suffering servant. I think this fills in some of that. And so there's some scriptural uh, prophecy going on, some fulfillment. I think, you know, we get, you know, in this little paragraph that we just read, 16 through 20, it's almost like a, a you know, in a picture, you know, a negative where, you know, he is the king of the Jews. And this is almost like a satanic negative or opposite. So this chapter 15, you know, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, he asks, uh, he asked Jesus, and then he asked the people, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And then the soldiers say, hail, king of the Jews. And then the inscription is put over the cross, uh, king of the Jews, verse 26. The people mock him, you know, the people walking by, king of Israel. And so you got this whole theme going up here through that Jesus is the king. And yet for us Christians, Jesus is precisely the king. He's precisely it is the most powerful when he's being crucified, when he is vanquishing sin and death and the devil through his suffering. So he's somewhere in an upside down king. And and this mocking and his, you know, all of this is like a upside down version of a real king, you know, a crown, but it's thorns. And it's, you know, he's being uh, struck and uh, being spit on. And then they're kneeling down. And all of this is, is this upside down Jesus as a king and as powerful but in an earthly way of seeing it, he's at he's at the very bottom. He's he's he has no power whatsoever, and he's being mocked, not worshipped. He's not being uh, glorified as a king. And so it's this upside down picture, I think that that really strikes me of 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 this Jesus just at his most pitiful and most uh, um, uh, rejected, and just uh, and yet it's that yes, he is the king. This is the very king of the Jews, and uh, here he is uh, suffering, and yet it's uh, for us. And he's really, in an upside-down, hidden way, exercising power over sin, suffering, and so forth. Yeah, this whole display of basically how the world's receiving Christ, their king. And you know, and your, and your word's also illustrated for what it's worth. You're right, we don't know their personal motivation, but perhaps it was that sort of idea that, you know, oh, you think you're a king over us that motivated them to be so mean, so to speak. But one thing that I found interesting as I was reading through it for today 
is I always wondered where did they get a purple cloak? It says, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And, and, and most people, I think, by this point who are students of the Bible know that purple is a very expensive uh, dye. It comes from a like a sea snail or something like that. Uh, it's very expensive. They probably wouldn't have access to one. And then I realized that in Matthew 27, he writes that they strip him and put upon him a scarlet robe. Now, scarlet is a much cheaper dye. In fact, it's something that perhaps a military officer would wear. And so that it sort of occurs to me that it probably was scarlet, as as uh, Matthew had said, one of the their own sort of robes. But they're pretending that it's a purple cloak. So we see that emphasized here with Mark, that they're clothing him in this sort of false purple, um, twisting together a false crown, a crown of thorns. And then, of course, hailing him with a false spirit. Uh, I think that is – you are absolutely right. What we see here is all of the world rejecting Christ kind of boiled down to this moment. Uh, and, and in many ways, you understand then why it's in every single uh, account where there's this description of the the soldiers mistreating Jesus because, well, that's really important. That's what happened when he came to save his people. And he didn't come just to save the Jews. To the Jews first, but not only. And so even the Gentiles are rejecting him. So we see both sides of the equation. The Jews hand him over to be crucified, and the Gentiles also reject him as king. Um, very important point you made. Yes, yes, and it's uh, it's absolutely right. And and uh, and you're right about the you know you're it's, it's interesting what you point out about the you know the purple cloak and. Uh, uh, where do they get it? And it is interesting to compare it to, to Matthew and to that, to that color. And, um, you know, it is, it is a striking thing. And, and, you know, it's, it's always brings back when we're reading this and when I was getting ready, it's, it's kind of jarring to read this in, in almost in December where I'm so, you know, we're so used to, uh, uh, encountering these scriptures in, in Lent and Holy Week. Uh, and when we encounter them now, it kind of reminds me of those, you know, the intense feelings of of, of sadness and 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 pity uh, for Christ as He undergoes this. And yet, you know, we know that uh, those soldiers, you know, are are no better or worse than us. You know, I mean, it's right. and we always have to put ourselves into these stories. And you know, it's our we don't mock Jesus this way, of course, but you know. It's our sins. It's our, uh, you know, taking Jesus for granted. It's all of those things which, which move Jesus to the cross and which put him uh, in this position. Absolutely. I mean, probably not outwardly mock Christ in this way, but anytime we do not honor Christ as our king in the way that we should, we're essentially mocking him. So you're right. It puts us right in the same boat with these, with these uh, soldiers. Well, let's move on to the next part. We're going to go into verse 21. Uh, the crucifixion is nearby. They're going to be leaving the Praetorium. That's the headquarters where they're at. Um, and now we see them uh, heading out of Jerusalem. Here we go. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. 
and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Okay, I, I have to pause there. It's the end of verse 28, only because even in those short uh, seven verses or so, there's so much. There's so much that Mark has packed in here. He, he definitely is a fast-paced uh, evangelist. So let's start at the very top. Who's this Simon of Cyrene, and why is he carrying the cross? And and I've always seen pictures of him carrying an entire cross and sometimes just the cross beam. Any insight on that you have? Uh, what's going on? Yeah, Um I mean, there is a lot going on, both you know, sort of historically and also, I think, theologically. So Cyrene was in North Africa. So, um, you know, lots of pilgrims uh, in the area, Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Um, so presumably they were, as it says, uh, Simon of Cyrene coming in from the country. Um, and uh, so, yes. I have seen the same sort of images of him carrying the entire cross, I, and but I've also read that it was uh, normal for Roman prisoners who were being crucified to carry the cross beam, their own cross beam. The the uh, I was going to say up and down. I guess I'm going to use a fancier word. The vertical post um, normally, I suppose, from what I've read, would have been you know uh, already in the ground at the place of crucifixion, and so they would normally carry the cross beam and probably what's happening although uh, it could be that he's carrying the whole whole cross i don't think just the word cross in verse 21 would would have to indicate one or the other so he's carrying it in so you know historically also this uh, fact that they mention his family that simon is the father of alexander and rufus has led many to to speculate that Either Simon himself became a Christian or his children did. Uh, there is a Rufus, I think it's Rufus, not Alexander, that's mentioned in Romans uh, 16 at the end of the letter when Paul says to, uh, you know, gives his greetings um, that he mentions uh, a Rufus and also his mother. So, you know, it has been widely believed that um Mark mentions those people that, you know, the way that he mentions it, it's almost as if he's assuming that uh, the people that he's writing the gospel for will know who Al. He doesn't go out of his way to identify Al. He doesn't say Simon and Serene, who happen to have two sons named Alexander and Rufus. He just mentions them as right. if they're known. It's like in the congregation, you know, you know, George and and Betty. Everybody's going to know who George and Betty is. So he assumes that Alexander and Rufus are known. So that's fascinating. And then mm -hmm. thirdly, you know, theologically, you know, Jesus had said in the Gospels, of course, you know, you know, take up your cross and follow me if you want to be my disciple. And here we get uh, an illustration of that in in real life that uh, Simon, and and this is more evidence, sort of poetically or picturesque in a picture way that you know simon and his family were christians because here's simon literally uh carrying the cross um and so it's sort of a an illustration of the christian life really that we follow jesus you know our lives are not easy we suffer we carry our cross just in the same way that that simon does now of course we're not dying for the sin of the world and simon mm -hmm. at the right. end gives that cross to Jesus. It's Jesus who suffers 
but yet he shares in Jesus' suffering, in a manner of speaking, by, by carrying that cross. And more practically speaking, he's carrying the cross, or they've you know co-opted him into carrying the cross because likely Jesus's weakness from from yeah. being beaten and tortured so much. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You because they again, would... go ahead, please. Yeah, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry. Uh, no, you're right. I think I should have mentioned that. Is normally the criminals carry their own, and and yet it seems that Jesus is not able to. I mean, because of his mistreatment, and again, it just adds to the to the sadness of the scene and the suffering of Jesus is enduring. But truth be told, I'd never really considered connecting it to, you know, bearing one's own cross. And um, of course, in this case, he's bearing Jesus's own cross, but you're right. We see here in the same way that we see a rejection of the Jews, then a rejection of the Gentiles through the soldiers. We now see a illustration of what it, what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus. Isn't to sit in power like Pilate or even Herod. It is to carry a cross, to follow in his way, to take the cup of suffering that he took. Now, verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, from what I understand, that is uh, an act of, of mercy in a way. Uh, that's uh, That was a, a analgesic. That's to help alleviate some of the pain of crucifixion, but he refuses it. Right, right. I think the wine, obviously— uh, there was no Tylenol in those days. Alcohol um, served that way, and also myrrh, uh, both sort of narcotics, um, deadening the pain. But uh, Jesus refuses it, so he he experiences his suffering. He experiences uh, being our substitute. You know, fully conscious, fully aware. Um, yeah, it, it's very interesting. The next passage then, like I said, one thing after another with Mark. The next passage fulfills prophecy from the Psalms. Verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Probably a common practice, uh, I would, if I had to guess. You know, the soldiers sitting around, these guys aren't going to need any of this stuff anymore. And if it's nice, they guess sort of... They pillaged the bodies. Uh, but in this case, it harkens back to Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Uh, we see prophecy being fulfilled. And, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and just adding one more verse, and it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the charge they that read above them was the king of the Jews. So we also know that in their continuous mocking of Jesus, uh, Pilate has affixed above them a sign that says the King of the Jews. Uh, there's a lot of speculation. We don't we don't need to go into it because it's not really a part of Mark's narrative. But there is some speculation of what what Pilate was trying to accomplish by writing that sign. You know, was he was he kind of trying to jab at the the Jews a little bit? Did he express some sort of faith, or was that simply the charges that were against him, and so therefore that's what he put above him? I, I don't know that we know, but it is interesting. And he's not alone, right? And he was crucified with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. Psalm 22 uh, is certainly being echoed there. And we're going to hear Psalm 22 again, you know, in just a little bit when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? So, and, you know, when you read Psalm 22, it is, you know, the voice of Jesus suffering uh, on the cross. It's quite striking. And so, that Psalm 22 is being fulfilled, and, and Jesus gives voice to it in, in verse 34. And uh, that is certainly working here. And, um, uh, you know, the 
the Jewish people who would read Mark or, or those who were learned in the Old Testament would would certainly recognize those what you might call them echoes, right? And and fulfillments, you know, the dividing the garments and and they're going to hear Psalm 22 being played out. And and then the two robbers and and then you're back to Isaiah again where he was he was numbered with the transgressors. It's Isaiah 53 or whatever. So Jesus is taking his place with these robbers, even though he is no robber, he's taking his place among sinners, um, punished in our place. For me, this brings to my mind even his baptism. You know, all these people were baptized by John in the river for the repentance of their sins, and then Jesus comes and wades into a pool of people's sins to be baptized himself, even though he doesn't need it. And we see that being played out here too. Jesus is a God among us. Well, the Psalm 22 is actually going to be demonstrated right here in just a second too, as we add some verses 29 through 32. Uh, Psalm 22, seven says, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Listen to what Mark writes. And those who pass by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. All right, that's the end of that. So again, pack full of a lot of things that's worth unpacking. But yeah, we even have literally people wagging their heads, mocking him as he goes up for, well, really for their salvation. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, what they say is so um, interesting, right? I mean, uh, verse um, uh, 29 there, or verse 30, I, no, 29, where he, well, 30, <laughs> save yourself and come down from the cross, right? I mean, uh, and then it, it, again, uh, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Again, the implication be save yourself. If you're, you know, if you're Christ come down from the cross and then we'll believe you. And, and those really connects for me to the temptation in the wilderness, which really began Jesus's ministry because there the devil, although Mark's gospel um, has a very short uh, version of the temptation, but in, you know, in the temptation, it's for Jesus to use his power for his own benefit, right? If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, the devil says, you know, make bread, you know, uh, rule the world, you know, do these things for power, make yourself comfortable if you are the son of God, meaning to be the son of God, to be the king of the Jews, to be the Christ means have worldly power, have comfort, uh, you know, do these things for yourself. And this is really the temptation as they're flinging these things at Jesus, because he's certainly able. I mean, he has, he has the power to come down. He has the power to save himself. He can do all of those things. And the fact that he hears those temptations and yet, um, and does not, uh, he is enduring this uh, temptation and, and not doing it for our sake. He's staying on the cross, not for his own sake, obviously, but for our sake, for the salvation of the world. And it's, you know, it's two different portraits of what it means to be the Messiah and what it means to be the Son of God and what it means to be the King of Israel. One is, you know, be a worldly king, you know, have power. But the other portrait, again, is this upside down version of being a king, which means 
precisely to uh, endure, to suffer, uh, and to um, bring salvation through these things. Your point about him continuing to suffer temptation is is really well taken. I, I think we tempt, we're tempt, we are tempted to uh, sort of limit that to his temptation out in the wilderness. But we saw it in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's no reason why he's not continuing to resist temptation here. Uh, he is a, a high priest that is not unsympathetic with our own weaknesses, and so I, I, I've never really thought of it in that way. But you're, I, 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 I resonate with what you're saying. As they're mocking him, certainly there would have been temptation to say, okay, I will come down. I will show you. I will call legions of angels to come help me. But, of course, he has his eyes set on his father's mission, and for that we're grateful. Yes, and that's, um, you know, all of these um, titles, <clears throat> we're going to get another one in a minute, the Son of God. But, you know, the king has been woven through, and then, uh, you know, the Christ there comes, uh, the Christ, the King of Israel, the one who had rebuilt the temple, all these things um, are images of power. And yet, uh, and Jesus has ultimate power <clears throat> and is displaying ultimate power. But again, it's in this upside down, hidden way of the way of the cross that Jesus is um, is winning the victory. And, you know, it's interesting, Psalm 22, as much as it is, three-fourths of it is, the voice of Jesus suffering on the cross. And yet the last quarter of it is Jesus being vindicated, Jesus right. uh, praising the Father for vindicating him. So Jesus does suffer, but yet he rises and, and he does win the victory. He wins in an upside down way, but he wins the victory and he has uh, power and glory and uh, is vindicated through his resurrection and, and reigning on heaven and earth. So it's it's both things. Well, let's keep on going because we just have a little bit more left. 33 through 41, that's going to end our section for today. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way that he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And there was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger, sorry, James, the younger, and of Joses and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. All right, and that's going to end our text. Our text ends with the faithful women looking on from a distance. We know that most of the disciples are in hiding at this point. But heading back to the top, verse 33, the sixth hour had come, that's about noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until, well, about 3 p.m., the ninth hour. Darkness over the land in the middle of the day. No wonder, no wonder the people thought that perhaps Jesus was calling down Elijah and the centurion uttered that this is truly the Son of God. Yes, it must have been quite a scene and uh, and uh, utter darkness in the middle of the day and um, 
it, it, just an amazing scene, uh, just uh, frightening and, um, you know, and, and as we, you know, kind of consider the scriptures and, and again, what you might call echoes in other parts of the scripture, I think Joel or Amos talks about the day of the Lord being a day of deep darkness and, you know, the this is the day of the Lord, this is the day of judgment uh, right here on the cross, condemnation, all the sins of the world being punished and you know, I think of Paul talking about creation, which groans under bondage, and and here creation itself, you know, the the sun being darkened, creation itself is, you know, hiding its eyes, you know, in a poetic way from uh, the Creator Himself uh, dying here. It's it's truly amazing if if we could really grasp what's going on just in that verse 33 you know this darkness over the whole land in the middle of the day and, and christ up on the cross it's truly uh truly uh, astounding when he and, says uh, eloi eloi lama sabachthani uh one commentator i read suggested that the reason why they thought he was calling down elijah is because they thought he was saying eli eli lama sabachthani um, I guess they didn't recognize the course that John the Baptist fulfills that uh, Elijah prophecy, but but still, do, do you think that hold any holds any weight, or do you think these people who were being influenced to perhaps believe because of the uh, the supernatural things going on? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I read the same thing about you know uh, the uh, it sounds very similar to Elijah in you know in Aramaic and. Uh, they perhaps thought he was calling Elijah. There was some thought, you know, that's reflected in some of the Old Testament scriptures and belief that Elijah would come at the end of the world. You know, it's hard to know exactly. I mean, I, um, and you know, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. You know, that's it's 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 interesting, but uh, you know, it's hard to say. I find, you know, in thirty-seven, thirty-eight, and thirty-nine. Um, those three, Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last. You know, this, this is kind of speculative, you know, but the Greek means he, you know, he, literally he he exhaled his spirit. He gave up his spirit and, you know, he had this, you know, the, uh, not the gift of the spirit, but sort of in a picturesque way, you know, the, the, um, the spirit coming forth from him that's going to come at Pentecost. Uh, that's a stretch, I'm sure, but it's a, it's an interesting picture. The curtain being torn in two, you know, certainly uh, reminds us of the book of Hebrews. And and again, um, this is, uh, you know, uh, an exact picture of what's going on. Not a picture. I mean, it's an event. You know, the, the temple, this curtain hung between the holy place and the most holy place where only the high priest would go once a year, day of atonement, you know, and offer the blood. So, you know, the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as our ultimate high priest who offers his own blood. And that's what's happening on the cross. And and so once the Christ has breathed his last and died and has offered sacrifice for the sins of the world, you know, the 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 need for the temple uh, is, is gone. Jesus is our high priest. And then most again, then verse 39, the centurion, this pagan uh, Roman uh, looks at all of this and confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And what the Jewish leaders and so many opponents of Jesus, even though they're versed in the Old Testament and the covenant, weren't able to see or refused to see, you know, this Roman centurion, this pagan sees it. Um, mm -hmm. Truly, truly amazing. 
Well, that's a powerful way to end this section. And well, that's how we're going to have to end our episode too. We're at time, but I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Gregory Alms. He's the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and School in Catonsville, Maryland. My apologies to the residents of Catonsville. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Appreciate uh, folk, it. Folks, uh, tomorrow we're going to finish up the book. You know, Jesus's tomb is found empty. But before it's found empty, there's a little bit of aftermath of Jesus's crucifixion. It's all going to unfold quite dramatically, as you might expect. So be sure to join us tomorrow as we dig in. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. <laughs>